Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. All right, I'm here today with Brian Pope. He's a dedicated and passionate professional who specializes in nonprofit leadership, zoological management, conservation, and education. And he currently serves as a director of the Luby Bat Conservancy, a leader in bat conversation, conservation, and education. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to chat. So we also involved in bat uh, conversation as well as conservation. So you were correct in that. I don't even know if you needed to... To uh, say it again, but yeah, we uh, we've been doing this for 31 years, and uh, really thoroughly enjoy what we do. Nice, yeah. Thank you for uh, it was completely on purpose. So thank you for catching that. Uh, nice I, segue. <laughs> Very good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, talk about your uh, career. You know, I know Luby's been around for 31 years, but you have a long career with different types of animals. And one of the first things I, I thought of before I started looking into some of your, um, you know, some of your other interviews and some other content you have out there. So like, what made you decide to start working with bats out of all the animals you have in the past? Warm weather. <laughs> um, I could say that because I'm from, I'm from uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, about an hour, maybe about an hour southeast of Pittsburgh. Uh, so I kind of grew up in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and I was just always an outdoor animal kid. You know, I come from my entire family. Always, we always had pets, and just everybody loved animals. And I was that kid who was running around. I lifting up rocks and, uh, you know, looking at salamanders, grabbing snakes. I can tell you, I've, I've worked a lot of snakes. I've probably been bit by most of them, but I was just always that animal kid. You know, I remember walking, I go to my grandparents' house and, you know, I go past two waterfalls. So, I mean, it's just, I was very fortunate where I was raised and I just always had an interest in working with animals. And so I went to Penn State and uh, got a degree in biology and uh, another degree in recreations and parks management. And I started working at the Pittsburgh Zoo, uh, 96 to 98. And to be honest with you, my background was always uh, reptiles. I was a harper, reptile and amphibian guy. And, um, you know, I was there working basically just a seasonal job, and I was doing an internship in the reptile department. And really when it comes to bats, I, I remember seeing bats as a child, and they had fascinated me. But, but honestly, I was more interested in the in reptiles, you know, and amphibians. Um but I kind of wanted to further my career. Uh, I didn't want to live in Pennsylvania anymore just because of the weather. I'm, I do not like cold weather. So that's where I mentioned warm weather comes in. And I had actually applied to quite a few places. And then I happened to get a job here in Gainesville, Florida, uh, at Luby Bat Conservancy. Um, and uh, it was working with bats, which I definitely interested me. Uh, but what I really wanted to do was get involved in conservation work, research, education, and uh, they just happened to have bats here. And, you know, I came down here, I was a keeper here in 96 to 98, and I just fell in love working with the animals. Um, and at the same time that I was here, Disney's Animal Kingdom, or Disney was building the Animal Kingdom, and they were holding, holding some of their animals here. Hmm. So I got to be really good friends with a lot of the folks. I don't work with the Disney animals, but you know, we worked basically right alongside each other, you know, where their enclosures were and ours were, you know, just feet apart. Uh, so I wound up going to Disney. Um, I moved down there with 27 bats from Luby. You know, let put them on loan. And I was at Disney for 10 years, and I did work with bats, but I worked you know, tarantulas up to giraffes and just everything in between. Um, and I had an opportunity to come back to uh, to Luby in 2007. And uh, I really knew it was a curator role, and I really knew that I was going to be even more involved with conservation work, uh, education, and obviously dealing with bats. And then um, took that job, and in 2011 became director and uh, we've really just kind of uh, expanded our horizons when it comes to bad education, conservation, research, community engagement, awareness, media, fundraising. I mean, you know, talking to you right now and, you know, my my background was always reptiles, but I've been working bats now for God going on, I think, 24 years. And I just find them extremely fascinating animals. Um, and I, I was just down there uh, checking out some of the bats today and interacting with them um, because, you know, we work alongside them. And it was just, it's, it's been a very rewarding career. I, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. Yeah, I can imagine that. When I started looking into, you know, I've always been interested in bats. Like we moved for a similar reason from Northern Virginia to, uh, you know, Southern North Carolina um, mm -hmm. for the cold weather to be by the water. Um, but there's this bridge that has tons of bats by us. And they've always interested me. Um, 
but just having read a little bit of your content or having uh, listened to some of your interviews, they're a lot more fascinating than I had first, you know, given them credit for. And I want to chat about that for sure. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about Luby. Like, so you said you've been with the organization since 2007. What kind of bat species have you seen at your tenure at UV, Luby? Um, at any given point, how many bats are there? How many species? Well, I mean, I can say that at Luby's peak, and this is probably in the early 2000s, there was about five to 600 bats here. Um, and then over the years, um, we have loaned out some bats and really kind of focused on the species that are relevant to the work that we're doing. And a lot of those bats went to zoos um, that are, you know, association of, of zoos and aquariums accredited uh, or certified related facilities. So we don't just, they don't just go into the pet trade, anything like that. Mm. We've only ever loaned bats uh, to uh, certified and accredited uh, zoos. Um, but, but really, right now, we have 13 species of bats. We usually maintain about 200 individuals. Um, and I have seen, usually, see, Luby's history, and we were founded uh, July 31st, 1989. Our history has always been um, old-world fruit bats, uh, flying foxes, and we have had some new-world fruit bat species as well. Um, but really, over the past five to seven years, one of the significant changes and things that we've been doing is focusing on native bats here in Florida and really kind of the United States Southeast. And we started off, it, it was really his parents that came here for educational programs, and they're like, you know, that's great that you're teaching bats, or teaching my kids about bats from, you know, Australia and in Asia and Africa, but it would be great if you could teach them about bats in their own backyard. So we kind of started to uh, change our education programs and incorporate a lot of information on native bats, and then we wound up funding a project uh, with University of Florida on bats, and it was like, uh, well, why are we paying people to do these projects whenever we can just do them ourselves? So uh, we got together with a local um, uh, environmental consulting firm, uh, they trained us on using acoustic technology, and um, we, God, ever since the past three or four years, we have worked all over the state. We've done uh, many, many acoustic surveys, uh, echolocation call analysis. We've, God, gone through 35, 40,000 calls um, just to identify species. We, we do site surveys, and one of the big things is that we do bat house construction installation, and we just put up our 63rd house um, the other day, and we have a success rate of about 90% occupancy. So to go back in, because I told you I was going to go off on tangents, to go back into the kind of bats that we have here, a couple of years ago we had an opportunity. Um, there was an organization that closed down up in Michigan, and we had an opportunity to take in some native bat species, some insectivorous bats, and none of us have ever worked them. So we made sure that we had all the proper uh, anything from enclosures to their diet to any type of vitamin mineral supplements. We talked to all the experts who have worked with these bats for years, and the past two years we've incorporated native bats into our collection, and they have been absolutely wonderful to work with. I mean, I- I've worked a lot of animals, but if we're specifically talking bats, um, it's basically been the old world fruit bats in the flying foxes. And uh, the flying foxes are types of bats, but these are the bats that are in the genus of Teropus. Um, it consists of about 67 species, and these are generally your larger species of bats. But um, yeah, uh, flying foxes are, yeah, flying foxes are a type of old world fruit bat. Um, but they're just kind of the larger ones that, in a specific genus. But but you had asked about the type of bats. I mean, I've worked a lot of them, but the insectivorous ones, the native ones, were the first ones that, that we've ever had here at Luby, and just so much fun to to work with. Um, we got a big outreach going on uh, this Saturday um, at the First Magnitude Brewery here in Gainesville. And we're going to be bringing some of those native bats down there. And it's one thing if folks see, you know, some of the big fruit bats. Like, I, I had no idea they could get that big. And we, we do bring a few of those individuals out. But for them to actually see bats that are flying around them. And I can tell you, after doing a lot of call analysis and acoustic surveys, they're everywhere. You just don't even know that they are around you because you can't hear them, because you can't hear their echolocation calls. And it's dark out, so you don't see them. They're, I find people are extremely fascinated whenever they see these bats, and they're very small. Their bodies are only, you know, about an inch and a half, two inches long. Right. Um, and they have a chance up close to see the bats that live around them. So we've had a lot of different species over the years. But right now, uh, 13 species, about 200 individuals, and um, really enjoy all the ones we have. I, I have a fondness for the very the largest species in the world, the Malayan flying fox. Uh, we have about 65 of those guys. Um, but I'm really enjoying these uh, the native bats we have as well. And those Malayan, those Malayan fruit bats get, like, what is it? Five feet with a six foot wing, wingspan or something? Yeah, they're they're absolutely enormous. And you know, we have a big festival every October. It's our our annual bat festival. And 
you know, a lot of people that come here may have maybe have never seen bats. So the main area where we house our animals, the first ones they see are these these huge males. <laughs> so you've got you know these big you know bats, five six foot wingspans, and they're sitting there looking at you. Now people aren't in with these bats, but they walk you know right right past their enclosures and they see them, and they see these huge bats. They may be a little apprehensive, maybe a little intimidated. And all of a sudden, they see these bats playing with each other and, you know, interacting with each other and playing with toys. They, they love to take things apart. They love all, all different types of fruits and vegetables. And, and all these misconceptions just kind of drop right there. You have this bat. He's looking at you because it's a myth that bats are blind. They can all see very well. So you get this huge bat, you know, checking you out. And then he's, you know, interacting with one of, his, uh, one of the other bats that, that he lives with. Or they're playing with toys, taking things apart. So they're absolutely enormous animals to see them. Um, but it's also kind of cool to see, you know, a lot of these myths just basically drop right then and there. Are a lot of these misconceptions because people are like, okay, they're a lot cuter than I had anticipated. Yeah, absolutely. Especially some of those fruit bats, those flying foxes. Yeah, I mean that's that's the one we have seven different species here of of the uh, of the flying foxes, and I mean people just absolutely get uh, a lot of joy out of seeing them. But really to to watch them interact with each other and see how playful they are. And last year we had a bunch of babies born because they are mammals just like we are. And people got to see, uh, you know, the, the babies starting to take, you know, starting to move a little bit further away from mom, but see the babies wrapped up in mom's wings, nursing from mom, interacting with each other. So it just, you know, there's still so many myths and, and misconceptions about bats. And that's one of them is that they're mammals, you know, are they mammals? Are they birds? It's like, no, they're mammals just like us, um, but what's kind of neat is if you look at the whole evolutionary tree of mammals, okay, and people always think of bats as flying mice, flying rats, that sort of thing. They're nothing even closer related to rodents. On one side of the spectrum, you have primates, including humans and rodents, and on the other side, you have animals like bats and pangolins and carnivores, and, we're, and bats are much more closely related to those animals than they are to humans and rodents. Um, so it's kind of neat to be able to see kind of the dichotomy of, you know, there's always been this misconception that they're flying rodents that actually see, no, they're, they're on this side of the spectrum, whereas humans and primates are kind of, and uh, humans and, and rodents are on this side, um, which I kind of find interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's one thing I was curious about is it seems like you have to spend a lot of time cleaning up misconceptions. Um, yeah, you know, I mean that's that's a big thing. It's awareness campaigns, just letting folks know what what they really are. What what is a bat, and you know, and you got to anthropomorphize, morphize them a little bit, and right. just to show them how playful they are, um, how they raise their young, how they interact with each other, how curious they are, and and that's what we do. What we've been doing for thirty one years is a lot of education and awareness. Well, one of the big misconceptions is bats spread diseases, and yes, when I heard you talk about how not only do they not spread diseases, but they actually have antibodies for viruses such as Ebola. That's fascinating to me. Is there a way you can touch up on that? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, it, I'm not going to say that they're not reservoirs for diseases. It's just, you know, what, what diseases are we talking about and what actually happens? So they have never, ever found a low, live Ebola virus in a bat. And, and bats don't just have certain diseases. If they get rabies, because they don't just have rabies, if they get rabies, um, they get uh, they can die from them just like basically any other mammal. And it's very, very short from the time they get rabies um, and, until they die. It's within about 24, 48 hours. They don't go through like this, you know, extremely aggressive uh, a stage that you see in a lot of like a raccoon or a dog or a cat or anything like that or a fox, skunk, raccoon, you know. Um, they can get rabies and they die from them. But if you look at some other diseases out there like Ebola, um, there's something in their immune system. They don't, they don't get it. But if they do acquire this virus, again, they've never found a live Ebola virus in a bat. If they do get this virus, there's something in their immune systems that just eradicates this virus, and then they're free of it. And then they have, you know, the, the antibodies, the antigens for this virus, and they're never affected again. And, you know, with, uh, I've got to touch on this, the whole coronavirus thing right now, which they have not, they have not found in a bat yet. Um, but the problem is, <laughs> the problem is never the bats. The problem is whenever you go into these, you keep cutting down these forests. Yeah. And you're, you're getting into these areas where these animals are, where these diseases are, and you expose yourself to them. Or you go to these horrific wet markets where you have, mm -hmm. maybe the virus didn't come from a bat, but you have bats and pangolins. That's the new one I heard they think this virus might have come from. Oh, wow. Bats, pangolins and snakes and chickens, and they're all being slaughtered live there, and they're extremely stressed, and they're shedding shedding viruses and diseases, that's the main issue. 
okay, is whenever we are continuing to cut down forests and slaughter wildlife and going into these wild places. Now, again, they have not had a direct link to coronavirus with bats, um, but if they do, that's, that's not the problem. And apparently these bats are not getting sick from this, so we have something to learn from them. And that's one of the things that Luby does is we've worked with CDC, um, NIH, National Institutes of Health, uh, U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, because they want to know what is in these bats' immune systems that they do not get sick from these diseases. So what we'll do is if a research project comes our way, we have a whole committee that okays these things, and we don't do anything terminal, uh, destructive, or invasive. Uh, but if the committee, um, which our, our main vet at the University of Florida is a part of, I'm the chair of the committee, um, if we approve these projects, um, we may uh, take one of our bats, uh, anesthetize that bat during its physical, um, we'll draw a little bit of blood, wake the bat up, send it off, it's fine, just like you'd get your blood checked. And what, what they do is we'll send these blood samples off, and they are injecting the blood with some of these biosafety level 4 viruses that determine, and this is all, you know, geographic, so Ebola is African species, you know, there's right, another right. one, Nipah virus in Asia. So, um, but what is in their immune systems that are not getting sick? And I think that's what makes Luby really unique is we don't do a lot of this research um, uh, just because we're much more involved in conservation education and obviously the care of our animals here. But, but it, w- what I find neat is we're, so what Luby's doing our part uh, to help find cures for some of the world's deadliest diseases. And, um, and uh, I, I think that awareness is the big thing, to say that, you know, these, these bats, these animals aren't the enemies. They can help us find these cures. We're actually going to go in and just completely obliterate them, destroy their habitats, because that would just make things a hell of a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Let's learn about some of these animals. Are they the reservoirs for these? And if they are, what can we learn from their immune systems to be able to come up with vaccines for some of these diseases? Yeah, and that's a uh, that's a really interesting point of just you know, obviously. I just spoke with John Platt. He's an environmental journalist who specializes in endangered species. So we talked a lot about species going extinct or, or potentially extinct. How are bats faring? I mean, you touched upon that a little bit, but what is the you know population trend of bats across the species? I think it depends on what species you're talking about. So we have um, big brown bats here um, that are doing quite well. Their populations are stable. We have a, uh, a species here, and we actually have big brown bats at Luby. We also have a couple of evening bats, which they were injured and needed a home. Um, and their range is expanding because diseases such as white-nose syndrome has killed so many bats in the United States that some of these other bats are kind of taking advantage that the disease doesn't really doesn't really affect, but I, I think it really goes down to if we're looking at bats overall, their populations are, are declining rapidly. Um, so in the United States, um, roughly 40% of our species are considered threatened with extinction. Um, and as from globally, that number is, is 25%. And there was recently, just as of the 90s, a species that went extinct. Um, it's called the Christmas Island Pipistrel. And I, I, I tell this story all the time whenever I do uh, lectures. Is and it's all about you know how are we going to conserve species? Are we going to conserve the ones that are charismatic and cute, or are we going to conserve the ones that that deserve it that are literally on the brink of extinction? And Christmas Island's on island northwest of Australia. That's where I have those big red crab migrations. Um, there's that the species there, and Australian government is is in control of this island, um, and they had known that this species of bat was declining for years and years. And they really didn't do too much about it. And I was in an international conference back in 2014, and there was a woman there who's in charge of uh, the zoos Victoria in Australia, and she's the one telling the species. So the Australian government did some work in about like the mid 90s, and they saw that the populations were going down, and then they, you know, kept going back every couple of years, and finally they found one small population left. And I want to say this is in the, the late 90s, uh, and they started to do some work to try to find the species. Uh, to figure out what they could do, and they went back one more time, and they did some acoustic studies where they were able to hear and detect these bad echolocation calls, and they caught the echolocation uh, call of one lone bat doing a search call and looking for bats of its other species. Oh. They never heard from her again, and she literally played this call, and she goes, that's the sound of extinction. Oh, wow. So it was a very, very powerful thing. She's like, this is why we're all here doing this work. But their, but their number, numbers continue to go down. Habitat destruction and fragmentation are some of the big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, overhunting is a big one, uh, especially in, in Asian, well, we're seeing you know, a potential issue right now um, over in China that there is just no regulations on 
on hunting these bats. So their populations are decimated from overhunting, from poaching, um, from habitat destruction. And then here in the United States, we have the disease white nose syndrome, which is a fungus that came from Europe. Uh, they first detected it in a cave in New York in 2006. Um, and what that does, it doesn't affect any other mammals. So humans are safe from it. Uh, bears, everything else, safe from it. But what it does is it affects, it's a fungus that affects hibernating bat species. They go into a true hibernation, and essentially it wakes them up whenever they should be conserving their energy and hibernating. And it irritates their um, respiratory systems. It irritates um, their wings. And what it does is that these bats just wake up whenever they should be sleeping and they go out and they starve to death or they freeze to death and since 2006 i believe that spread to 38 states and five canadian provinces and killed an estimated seven to eight million bats it's absolutely devastating so as a whole bat species aren't doing good but there are some success stories out there um that people are doing some great work uh you know funding from luby uh collaborations with other organizations so there is Good news out there. It's not all just, you know, doom and gloom. Uh, but unfortunately, as a whole, bat species are continuing to decline, which is a shame. Um, because if you look at mammals as a whole, bats are some of the most important mammals to humans. Outside of maybe mammals that people consume, uh, bats are out there every night, not bothering anybody. They're out there every night, either, you know, eating insects uh, and uh, controlling insect populations. And a lot of those are agricultural pests or they're out there pollinating flowers, dispersing seeds, and they, the economic and ecosystem benefits they provide humans on a daily basis is unmatched in the mammal world. Absolutely incredible, the, the human services that they provide day in and day out. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that um, bats can eat up to 8,000 insects a night, and then they're actually responsible for, like, pollinating agave, which is a, a key ingredient in tequila, is that right? Uh, yeah, that is correct. They're one of the only pollinators for agave and a lot of uh, cactus species uh, in the Southwest. But but here, here's the thing about that is I'm not a big tequila guy, okay? But I do I do enjoy my hoppy beers. And bats also eat a lot of agricultural pests that, that prey on hops and uh, everything from corn, tomatoes, um, cantaloupe, that sort of thing. And bats are, there was a study done by the U.S. Geological Survey, this is uh, about eight, nine years ago, and that study showed that bats save farmers between 3.7 and 53, and just in the U.S. alone, 3.7 and 53 billion dollars a year annually by reducing the need for pesticides and by consuming so many agricultural pests, and a lot of those pests are on corn, cotton, soybeans, and tomatoes, which are some of the biggest crops that come out of the United States. Bats are out there every night eating those insects. And like I said, on a personal level, they're also eating pests that, uh, that uh, consume hops uh, as well. So they're doing this every night, um, just going out and eating these insects. And, um, and uh, just the, like I said before, the ecosystem benefits they provide is absolutely incredible. And then you have your, your fruit-eating species, uh, which account for about 20% of all bat species, and uh, every night they're out there dispersing seeds, pollinating flowers, everything from agave to cactus to cashews, mangoes, bananas, uh, you know, all sorts of just different uh, uh, crops that we depend on. And I believe the number of crops that rely on that somehow that humans use is around 80 to 85 uh, different varieties, different crops. Holy. So, so if you like hobby beer, if you like tequila, if you don't like getting bit by mosquitoes, I mean... It seems like all the, I love tequila. It seems like all the reasons in the world to, uh, you know, do our best to conserve these species. Pandas are cute, <laughs> but if we're going to put a value, if we have to put a value on mammals, they don't really do too much for humans, although they are pretty damn cute. But, but bats are out there every night uh, doing this, uh, you know, eating insects, you know, dispersing seeds, pollinating flowers, and uh, they don't get a lot of credit for the services they provide to humans. So, you know, you've got places like Louis Back Conservancy here to tell folks, you know, why they're important, why they matter, and why they're some of the most important mammals to humans. And I want to touch upon something you said you mentioned earlier. Like, so you're, you have learned the calls of different species and subspecies of bats, even though you're, they're inaudible to humans. So you guys are setting up recorders out in the field and you've been able to decipher between two different calls. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So we worked with that uh, environmental firm, uh, Norman Dow and Associates here in Gainesville. Um, I think they have offices nationwide. But, um, so, yeah, they, they gave us, they loaned us some of their equipment. And what we do is we set up these very um, 
very detailed uh, microphones, um, very intricate. Um, and uh, what these microphones do is we, we put them in like this big PVC case, and we connect that microphone to a computer box, and we can program that box to in like the time of day, everything from the time of day uh, to the frequency um, to you know what duration we want to record those calls. And w- what I'll do is after you know two to four nights, I'll go back. And, and these are, they have their own batteries, you know, so they're all freestanding. Um, all the batteries, you know, charged up and we charge the box up as well. So I'll go back and just download that information to a flash drive. I send off all the calls. It gets downloaded to Normandale server. That server cleans them up and then I get them sent back. And I can get like, I don't know, 20 calls in a night. I could get 2,000, 10,000 calls in a night. Hmm. And what they do is they send us like these 1.7 second blocks, okay? And you see the call. And what you're looking for are search calls. Because if it's, if you got like a bunch of vertical lines in a row and then they stop, that means that whatever bat that was most likely caught an insect. What do you mean you a bunch of really... vertical lines in a row? Like in... Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's like you got literally, if I'm looking at my, my monitor, all right, and I see those, those lines get from like a half inch down to you can't even see them anymore as they progress across the screen. I know right uh, the screen, I know right there that they caught an insect. So they're not but calling can't... at that point? No, so that's called a, what's called a feeding buzz. But what you do, what you do look for are these individual like calls. So, you know, in that, when that 1.7 second block, you usually get anywhere from maybe, you know, two to five calls. And every one of those calls is each bat species. It's going to be at a different frequency, which I just moved this cursor over and it shows what the frequency is. And they have a different shaped call. Now, one of the most common we have, I believe you guys have them up in North Carolina. They're all over the southeast, Mexico, Central, South America. They're called um, uh, free-tailed bats. Uh, Mexican or Brazilian, uh, people use different names. But anyway, these free-tailed bats. Tadera brasiliensis is the, the scientific name, and their calls are usually these kind of like these straight line calls, but they got like a punch on the top of it, like a, on the beginning of it, and then they have a little tail on the bottom, usually about 17, 27%, and it's a very strong call. I know as soon as I see that, it's a Mexican free-tail bat, and that's whatever I recorded. Wow. And it's wild to listen to these species and know that there's an entire world that surrounds us at, at night that we have no idea even exists. So it's, it's really cool to... To, whenever we, we go out to do some of these surveys, just to find out, okay, what are we going to find? You know, and we've worked in southwest Florida looking for a critically endangered species called a Florida bonnet bat. And, you know, we think of endangered species, we think, you know, Asia, tigers, rhinos, elephants, that sort of thing. We have one of the world's most endangered mammals uh, living right here in Florida, south Florida. It's called a Florida bonnet bat. Maybe only a few hundred of them survive. Uh, but what's pretty wild is their echolocation calls are audible. I think they can get down to like 10 to 12 kilohertz, which humans can hear. Oh, wow. So we've tweaked some of our sensors, because um, these microphones, again, are extremely sensitive. Um, we've tweaked some of them to look for these bats. Unfortunately, we didn't find them, but, but we usually find a lot of other species. I typically find about six to eight whenever I do some of these recordings, and it's just, it's cool to see it. And we just worked with a local elementary school here, Bronson Elementary, and we were, we were showing the kids how to identify species with these calls, and they were going through them and identifying them with us. So it was pretty neat. It's not like it's, it's rocket science, and, you know, I've, I probably wouldn't be able to figure it out anyway. But something as simple as this, it's pretty neat to do it, give a report, and, and, uh, and be able to tell our clients, like, hey, this is what you have on property. And in doing so, uh, we help them write environmental reports. Um, some of these places, such as cement plants, are uh, wildlife uh, certified by the Wildlife Habitat Council, so we can help with that. And I tell you what, we do our field work on Fridays, and it's great to get out of the office and away from a computer on Fridays because I know we're going out and we're doing surveys, we're monitoring bat houses, we're working with clients, and one of the, the big things is uh, is putting up bat houses. And we just put one up. We put up a, a four-chambered bat house, holds about 300, 400 bats at this brewery here in town called Swampet Brewery. And uh, we did that t- 2017, and up until July of last year, there's about 350, 400 bats working, er, working. I guess they are working, living in that house. Anyway, a tree came down and took the house out. So our one maintenance guy, his name's Tim Myrick. This guy, he knows how to build bat houses. We built a much bigger house using some of those chambers that were still intact. We went down there about a week. We, we put that house up on October 4th, um, and we hadn't seen anything in about a month, month and a half. Uh, actually, I guess it'd probably be like a couple months. But we went down there uh, a few weeks ago, and we saw a huge guano pile underneath his house and. My wife and I went back a few days later and watched an emergence of about 2,500, 3,000 bats just flooding out of this thing. Wow. Uh, so it's pretty cool to see that, you know, the work we're doing, and we've worked in 19 countries in 30-plus years, but it's nice to see some of the work we're doing here 
where we're providing a home for bats. They're providing, you know, they're eating insects every night. The client's happy. The bats have a place to go. And it's a lot of mitigation work, too. These bats aren't in buildings and apartments and things like that. Right. They're living in the bat house. They're not bothering anybody. They're eating insects every night. Win for Luby, win for the bats, win for our customers. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool, and we really enjoy uh, our Florida bat programs in this aspect of what we've been doing lately. So earlier you mentioned there was like a 90% success rate with your bat houses. What does that mean? What's the other 10%? Uh, like, is it just location, or do the bats not take into the house for another reason? Yeah, I mean, so I, we don't, I don't really know why some of them don't go. I mean, it's so I, you know, I'm a biologist. We had I've been living in my current house for I don't know, ten, eleven years, I think. I've had a birdhouse up. That I thought I think is in a prime location. It's never had a bird in it once. We've had lizards and a flying squirrel. So it doesn't matter where you put some of these houses. It's all got to be if they want to if they want to live there. Um, but I, one of the big things is it's the house that Tim makes in the location, you know, where we put these things. For the other houses that got don't have bats, I just I, I don't know why bats are very picky. But to have a, a nearly ninety percent success rate is ridiculous. And so living down here in Florida, what we do is we it's got to be in an open area. That's one of the main things. You got to be within about a half mile maximum of a water source, um, and you got to put the it got to be about twenty feet from a tree line because the bats you can't put a bat house up on a tree. Too many obstructions, too much shade, and uh, way too many perches for hawks and a lot of rat snakes, too, hmm. will climb up trees. So 20 feet from a tree line on a freestanding pole, 20 feet in the air facing southeast, so it gets sun pretty much throughout the year, and then uh, stained a medium brown color. Um, and then the way that, again, that just Tim's building these houses, I mean, it's, it's just working. Um, now, whenever I went to Penn State, <laughs> I was at an environmental center, a volunteer in their uh, Shavers Creek Environmental Center. Up there, bat houses were stained black usually on the side of the building and facing east. Because, again, you're in a much colder climate. You want that house to really retain the heat with uh, the black stain, with being on the side of the building. And in the summertime, you know, in the warmer months, I should say, whenever the bats are living there, so, you know, like spring, summer, and a little bit of fall, mm -hmm. the sun's going to be facing east. You know what I mean? It's not going to be further south in the winter, because by the time that's, that sun is south, the bats are gone from that house. They're hibernating in a cave. You know, so uh, here, at least in the southeast, it, you know, south to have the that's, uh, houses facing southeast, 20 feet high, minimum 12, about 20 feet high, uh, at least 20 feet from a clearing, you know, nearby water source, and and you're good to go. So it's, we just I literally got an email from a woman yesterday, and we put up a bat house, uh, little town called Mount Dora, about uh, 45 minutes north of Orlando, and we put that up about a month. I'm sorry, about a year and a half ago, and she hadn't had any bats, but all of a sudden she was. Went back to her, uh, they're from the UK and she came back uh, a couple weeks ago and guano everywhere, bats everywhere, and it may take a while. On average, our bat houses take about five to six months, but sometimes a little longer. Sometimes we've had bats within a couple weeks, but, you know, to, to be able to have that kind of occupancy rate and to have, you know, bats living in these houses is, is just fantastic. So it's, uh, it's, it's a win across the board. And that's what we try to do is whenever we do these projects, I mean, we just got a grant to work out and, at an island called Bougainville, which is part of Papua New Guinea. And these are the type of projects we do. And um, we literally we funded four uh, conservation organizations. This is all in the past week. Four conservation organizations in Australia that are dealing with the wildlife affected by the bushfires, which is just horrific. Um, and then we just got this $30,000 grant to work in Papua New Guinea. And I, the way that we do our projects is, I mean, you have to go out and you have to get the natural history information on these animals to even start some of these projects. But... They have to be long-lasting. You can't just go and get the data and get it published and just, all right, you know, wash your hands, you're done. This project in, in Bougainville is really, it's going to be run by the Rotakis people and the Rotakis people, I'm sorry, the Rotakis Ecotourism Group. So it's going to have an animal in a, a conservation aspect. But if you really want these conservation programs to work, there's got to be more involved. And what we always say is that animals are central to everything we do, but there's so many other factors that are positively influenced by our conservation education programs. And we've built schools in Madagascar. We've empowered women's groups in Madagascar. We've created jobs here in Florida, uh, jobs uh, in, in Africa, um, over in the Solomon Islands, where we've been working for, God, five, six years. Um, we have helped uh, the people that are there talk to government officials. We've helped to protect forests for the first time in that country's history, have protected land, yeah. uh, and land that's not only important for the, for the animals, but they have cultural, spiritual, economic significance for these people. In Bougainville, it's going to be about sustainable farming, uh, creating livelihoods, creating jobs, uh, community impact, community engagement, and biodiversity, and not just bats, but, but bats and biodiversity conservation. And if, if you want to make these, and I've, I've seen your, your bio too, 
you know traveling in these places mm-hmm. if you've got to get the local people involved but they're not you know why would you know you got to have them got to have a reason to, to have these projects be sustainable you can't just go in as westerners go in get the information and then leave with nothing you got to you have to have community engagement uh, work with the children work with the women's groups working with some of these tribal leaders these community leaders to have a, a reason and, and to keep these these projects sustaining you know, and I think Luby's been able to, to do a fantastic job of that. Is that we'll get the funding, and, and at times we travel over there, but it's like, okay, here's the funding. You guys run it, report back to us, and what, what do you need from us to make this project worthwhile? It's going gonna, it's gonna to engage communities and conserve species. Yeah, and that's such a key point, is getting the community involved. Uh, so yep. speaking of Madagascar, uh, a couple months ago I spoke with Chris Duke of the Conser- Phoenix Conservancy Project, um, and he's working in Madagascar right now. And the situation is as dire as you say. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are there's very little trees left, but yet it also has, you know, some of the only populations of lemurs in the entire world. Yep, we work with uh, Madagascar of Vakaji, which is a fantastic organization out there, uh, run by Julie Hanta. She's since been married, so I, I believe that's her last name anymore. But, but anyway, Julie Hanta is, is the director there. She does fantastic work, and that's the thing is we'll get the funding. Hand it over. You guys run it, and you know, it, working with some of her projects that has involved um, uh, empowering women's groups, sustainable agriculture, and the thing is, a lot of the people in these areas they're they're hunting bats, which you can't go over there and tell them not to. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can work on sustainable hunting, and that that does take a lot of people off. And we say we work with hunters, but they don't get it. Poachers are the problems. Okay, hunters aren't the problems. Hunters want these animals around. So to work with some of these communities, and in one project that they saw about a 40% reduction in hunting in some of these. I know, I know it was. The, the conservation program involved, this was the women's group, empowering women's groups, a community seed fund, sustainable agriculture, protecting these roost sites. And they were still hunting these bats after a year, but the population in some of these areas of these bats went up 40% because they weren't killing these bats during maternity season. Yeah. They were letting the pups grow up, and they were still hunting them. And again, they're going to hunt them. Okay, yeah, but, but work with the communities that are there to ensure that these animals' populations don't continue to decline until they're locally extinct. Yeah. You know, work with them on these sustainable techniques uh, to ensure that these animals that they some of them depend on are there for their livelihoods going down the road. And, and, it, and it's a win across the board. It's a win for the communities. It's a win for the animals. And in a lot of situations, it's a win for the environment and the habitat. That's the way you've got to do these projects. It's nice to go in and get the data, but that's not, you can't just do that anymore. You can't. Yeah, and you're exactly right. I mean, a lot of times at least locally in the United States, hunters are some of the most conservation-minded people I've ever met. Um, Absolutely. People who are doing it sustainably and who aren't, you know, uh, completely decimating the population or a subpopulation. Those are the ones that that you want on your side. You don't want to just go ahead and say all hunting is bad. That's not right. You know, poaching when it's just for crazy monetary gain. Yeah, you can say that. That's that's a different category. Mm Mm-hmm. Years ago, we, we've worked in, in worked in and funded projects over in Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands. And, excuse me, I think it was back in 2008 or nine. I had just kind of joined Ruby, and the director at the time was pretty involved, but I had also got involved with some, some aspects of that project. Is These poachers went into this area. There was a, an endemic species over there, uh, and there was one species, the Guam flying fox, had already been eaten, literally eaten to extinction. There was another one that was getting pretty hit pretty hard in the Northern Marianas Islands called the Marianas flying fox. There's about 5,000 of them left, and I believe this is correct. They went into a maternity colony, and over the course of two weeks, poachers, over the course of two weeks, killed 500 of them. Wow. And, and this is a tenth of the population in, oh in God, weeks. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, a tenth of tiger population gone in, in two, two weeks in the global outcry. But these are bats. That's why, you know, that's why you need these education awareness campaigns. But anyway, we work with the local hunters that were there, because these, these weren't just the local people. They were killing these bats and sending them off to other islands and just making a buck. We work with the local hunters, and because of working with them and with Disney's funding, I'm sorry, uh, we got a grant from Disney, but then also Ruby put some money into this joint collaborative project with all these entities getting involved. That led to the first prosecution in that country of a poacher, and they got hit pretty damn hard with oh, that wow. one. So it's nice that we get nice collaboration with, uh, with Disney, uh, Ruby funding it as well, and then working with the people that are over there, communities, and the hunters that led to the prosecution of these people, because it was just horrible. And, and I want to say since then, the population's been relatively stable. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because we just got back from, my wife and I just got back from our honeymoon in Uganda. 
Um, it was incredible. We got to see the mountain gorillas. We got to see a whole lot while we were there. But one of the most mm-hmm. interesting things was seeing um, signs that Disney actually does. Disney provides a lot of funding for uh, conservation efforts, which I would oh, not have known about. Oh, very much so. And, you know, that was one of the cool things is I, I worked there for 10 years. And, you know, I worked with the animals I was there. I didn't get involved too, too much with any conservation or anything. But I, I'm very, very proud of the time that I worked there because uh, my wife worked there as well. Uh, not only is it just a top-notch uh, zoological facility, even though it's a theme park, but if we're looking at it just from the animals, not only is it one of the best in the world, but what they do when it comes to conservation funding is absolutely incredible. It's on a scale that I don't think any other accredited certified related facility zoo is doing. So it's cool that you guys saw firsthand uh, just the, you you know, the, the, I don't want to say the power they have, but just what they do to encompass conservation projects. Their their reach, you know, how they can expand and do these projects because they're working with some of the the top people in the field when it comes to anything from from mountain gorillas to they funded movie projects or, you know, bat projects. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I, I thoroughly enjoyed working for the company. Um, again, not only for what they do with the animals, but their their global reach. So I don't want to say power, but global reach when it comes to to their conservation programs. And you know, and I've written some grants for Disney and didn't get them because they're so difficult. Because they want you to to really incorporate not just the conservation aspect, but the education, community engagement, and research aspect. So I mean, they're not easy grants to get. We had got some um, because they're so specific on what they want. Because all of these things come together. That's like I was saying. Animals are central, but there, there's so many other factors. That are, that are influenced by this conservation work, because there has to be. Kids, communities, research, um, make these conservation programs long-lasting. And I think for 31 years, you know, Luby's, we just, I, I just had it up this the other day. So with what we just funded in Bougainville and with, with Australia, we're now at 188 projects that Luby's funded in 31 years. And, and if you look at how, you know, we first started and how we've evolved with funding, I'm, I'm just... I'm, very, very proud, extremely proud of the work that Louie's been doing for over three decades. We have a good relationship with Disney as well, and a lot of other people we collaborate with, and uh, it's just, a, it's a very rewarding job. Yeah, I mean, so you've talked about a lot about how Luby, you know, helps other organizations, but how can people, wherever they're from, how can people help Luby? Um, well, the main thing is just kind of see what we've got going on, and, and to do so, um, we're on, we have our own Facebook page. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, we have our own YouTube channel, um, and then they can check out our website, which is luby.org, that's L-U-B-E-E, <laughs> L-U-B-E-E.org, luby.org, and they can find out everything about our animals um, to our organization, uh, to the projects we're involved in. There's a lot of educational resources there for, for parents and teachers and just anybody, uh, but the main thing that people want to do if they want to get involved is, you know, we're a small nonprofit organization uh, with a limited budget. Uh, and they can donate, and those donations go everything to taking care of our 200 plus bats here, to helping us to support you know some of the projects we just funded. And one of the other cool things too is um, if you go to explore.org, and there's links on our website, luby.org, um, there are live cameras to watch our bats. So we have two uh, cameras in two of our enclosures, and people can watch these bats live 24/7, 365 days a year. Uh, we also go in there; um, they get to see the bats playing with each other, playing with all these toys. They love things that make noise, take things apart. Uh, we also give presentations there. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways that people can get involved. Again, uh, our Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook is very, very active. There's good things on there all the time. Uh, check out our website, luby.org. Check out the Explore cameras. Um, but if people want to donate, they can do that on our website. And that goes to literally everything from general operating funds, animal care, and also supporting our, our conservation programs. And we always appreciate the support. We couldn't be doing this for 31 years if it wasn't for uh, the support of, uh, of the, and the generosity of, of uh, the people out there. I mean, the people that, that have been keeping us going for 31 years. And uh, we're always looking for some new friends. So if people want to do that and donate to Ruby, go to our website, Ruby.org, for more information. Nice. Yeah, and in turn, I mean, you're helping, you're helping everyone. You know, if, if you don't like tequila or a hoppy beer, or if you like to get bit by insects, man, I don't want to know you. <laughs> For God's sake, right. let's That's try and issue. save these bats as much as possible. I mean, I can understand not liking tequila, but it's <laughs> never been <laughs> my thing. But hey, yeah. but hey, a lot of people do. A lot of people do on a global scale, and bats are the only ones out there pollinate, uh, pollinate the agave plant and the flowers, and, and that's why we get tequila. So wild. Um, I do want to talk real quick, because you brought this up a couple times, of how they like to take things apart. They, mm-hmm. And that's because 
their their wings are really hands, right? Hands with thin membranes of, of skin between the fingers. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So if, if you look at a bat, um, if you look at their morphology, so if we're looking at a bat skeleton, I mean, they they look very primate-like, although we, as we talked about before, we know that they're not. They got ten fingers and ten toes, um, so they don't really have behinds. They don't really have butts. Um, they have very kind of smaller legs in comparison to the body, uh, and they, again, they're mammals. They don't have hollow bones, uh, but they have ten, ten toes, and if you look at them, it looks like their knees bend backwards, but it's not. It's like if you took your right knee and kind of started to move it to your side, their hips kind of turn their legs in, so that enables them to kind of crawl upside down, but their wings are literally just hands like we have, so their upper arms are in proportion to the rest of their body, but their forearms are huge and their and their fingers are huge. And they have a sheet of skin that goes from the base of the thumb to the shoulder. They have skin that goes in between the fingers, and then they have a large sheet of skin. And all this skin is called the patagium that goes from the base of the pinky down to the ankle. And so literally it's their whole arm uh, is encased in skin, and that's what enables them to fly. And bats are the only mammals capable of flight. Um, for them to be able to take things apart, the only appendage they don't have in their wing that's not that is free, I guess you could say, is their thumb. Hmm. So whenever they crawl around, and people could see this again, if they go to the explore.org and check out the cameras, they'll be able to see our bats moving around, flying, interacting. <clears throat> they use their their toes to be able to hang on, uh, and they also use their thumbs to move around. So when they take things apart, they're using their thumbs. They can bend their foot up and do that, or they you know they have their mouths as well. And by the way, I should say this: Why do bats hang upside down? Is to take flight. So they can't. They, gotcha. they can't, you know, just go to the ground and, you know, run or anything. They cannot walk. They just don't have the, the morphology for it. So whenever they're hanging upside down, all they have to do is look around, see where they want to go. Uh, we also we already talked about bats on blind. Uh, and then they just let go and take off. So the reason they hang upside down is to take flight. And I should say this. When I first started working with bats back in 96, there was 920 known species of bats. As of right now, there's 1,406. So they've found almost 500 species of bats in you know almost two and a half decades hmm. um, you can split those up into about 1200 species of what's considered your microbats uh, 200 of those are your megabats so the year old world fruit bats for the most part with the exception of a couple species your megabats do not echolocate all of your microbats do echolocate microbats are you know what we have you know, here in the states um, and, but whether they echolocate or not it doesn't matter they can all see very very well hmm. the reason they echolocate is just a lot easier means of getting around at night or hunting insects down or some species eat frogs some species eat fish so echolocation helps with that the ones that don't echolocate for the most part are fruit eaters and their food's not really going anywhere um but uh the back to the bat's wing i mean all it is is just a, a large hand and that's what people have a hard time like what is this claw what am i seeing what is this literally 10 fingers 10 toes uh just like humans do wow interesting so they they don't all echolocate the bats no but then also they're not, I remember reading that they're not all nocturnal and they can see, I mean, there's a lot of myths to, there's a lot of myths to dispel, man. Yeah, I mean, it's, when it comes to our activity pattern, the majority of them are nocturnal, but some like the ones we have here, uh, you know, some of the older fruit bats are crepuscular and there's also species, I believe it's the Samoan flying fox. It's either Samoan or, or Tongan, but I think it's the Samoan flying fox, which is active during the day. No natural predators. And what's wild is you'll see them riding these thermals on some of these islands, which is just very, very cool. So, yeah, I mean, it's, again, depends on the bat species, and, you know, for the most part, they are nocturnal. Uh, but, again, some are crepuscular, and even one or two of the species are diurnal, active during the day. Wow. Yeah, and crepuscular is uh, dawn and dusk, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, active mornings and evenings, correct, yep. Nice. And um, so when they use their, their hands to – or, excuse me, so when bats are flying – do they use their hands at all to help with their flight and help with direction and, and altitude? Yeah, so that's exactly what they're using is, is their wings to be able to fly. Um, so we did a study with the U.S. Air Force. It was funded by the Air Force through Brown University where they came to Luby, and we had these flight corridors where we were taking some of our bats and flying them down there, and when they got to the other end, they'd get a grape or a you know, piece of cantaloupe or something, so they didn't seem to mind. Um, what they were doing was they were just filming underneath, like, how are these bats able to fly? And what they wanted to do is, you know, look at creating drones. Because if you think wow. of an insect or a bird or anything like that, uh, anything that's man-made, um, planes, whatever, everything's a fixed wing. Okay, they can't really rotate them too much. 
Well, Bat's wing is its hand. So they have all the same joints we do. Um, and what they, what they found is they get a lot of their thrust from that patagium or that skin that's between their pinky and their ankle. But they get their dexterity and their maneuverability from their, their fingers. And mm-hmm. it resting, if a bat's just resting there with its, you know, its you know, fingers folded behind them, to fully extend it while they're flying, they can stretch it out 400, uh, uh, about 400%. Oh, and if wow. people ask by the what is their what does their wings feel like? It feels like your eyelid. I mean, it's just, it's a very unique biological material. It's skin, but it has all, you know, it's elastic fibers in it, all these blood vessels and everything. Um, but for the most part, uh, it just feels like your eyelid. It's very soft, very pliable. Uh, they can get holes in there, in their wing, just like we have, you know, you can get a cut. Um, so it's the same thing, but they have extremely fast regeneration in their wings uh, so that the, the holes in their wing, if they're severe, won't affect the flight. They'll heal up very, very quickly. This goes all the way back to what you, were, you and I were talking about earlier. Their immune systems are, are very, very unique and very efficient, and uh, a lot more work needs to be done to find out what what is in these, you know, what is in their immune systems that is, you know, enables these bats to uh, not get sick from some of these diseases, to heal, regenerate their wings so quickly. Um, if they were to get holes, they're just absolutely fascinating animals, and I think we just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg on on how wonderful and unique they really are. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. There's so much, it sounds like there's so much to learn from them, whether it's how are they actually flying versus, you know, how are they essentially disease resistant to a lot of these diseases mm-hmm. that will take people down. Um, exactly. That's incredible. That's You are doing such incredible work, both you and uh, Luby. Um, and I know you're super busy. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This has been super fascinating. Um yeah, I, I wish you continued success in everything that you guys are doing. Um, keep fighting the good fight. I mean, this is, uh, you know, whether it's dispelling myths or hopefully, you know, improving some of these populations that might be on the decrease. I think this is very important work. So thank you so much, Brian. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Luby and the work we're doing and bats in general. It's uh, I always appreciate talking to folks who uh, who enjoy wildlife and, uh, and these type of concert, uh, conversations. So, again, I uh, definitely appreciate the opportunity. There it is again, that, that conservation conversation. I don't anyway. One last thing, though, too. Again, if folks yeah. want to learn about Luby, check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, or check out our website, Luby.org. They can find out about our BATS organization uh, and also donate and support some of our efforts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will link to those in the uh, in the podcast itself and also on the blog. Uh, don't forget okay. to I appreciate that again. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.